Welcome to PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Soboleski, and today I bring you episode four in the five-part series that focuses on agitation in children. If you recall, and I hope you've been listening, episode one was focused on differentiating organic versus psychiatric causes, episode two, non-pharmacologic management, episode three, pharmacologic management, and now here, episode four, we shift gears and talk about pre-hospital strategies for the safe transport of agitated children. I want to thank my co-producer in this series, Dennis Wren, and let you know that this podcast series is a co-production of the Emergency Medical Services for Children Innovation and Improvement Center, whose mission is to minimize morbidity and mortality of acutely ill and injured children across the emergency continuum. The main objectives of this fourth episode in the series are to identify the unique aspects of the pre-hospital environment that impact the assessment and treatment of agitated children, describe the role of emergency medical services personnel and EMS directors in the care of the agitated child, and to describe the role of medical control in determining the destination and goals of safe transport. The main theme of this episode is centered around safe transport and prevention of injury for everyone involved. That includes the patient, emergency medical services personnel, and the general public. Let's start with protocols because everybody loves them some protocols. And every EMS agency should have protocols for dealing with agitated or violent patients. And we're defining protocol here as a written document that provides oversight from the medical director about how to assess and treat patients. Sometimes these are referred to as guidelines, standing orders, policies, or procedures. And these protocols are often developed in collaboration with multiple stakeholders. This can include EMS staff and administration, legal counsel, community members, law enforcement, and medical personnel at local and regional hospitals. These protocols need to be patient-centered and improved by the EMS medical director, and they should address for agitation, restraint strategies, devices, and techniques when each of them should be used, who is allowed to apply them, and whether or not medical oversight is required. These protocols also must specify what techniques and medications are not permitted. It is up to the EMS agency to oversee education and credentialing. All providers must be able to recognize, assess, and treat agitated patients and have training on the implementation of restraints and administering medications via multiple different routes. It is the EMS medical director who is ultimately responsible for credentialing practitioners and determining ongoing competency. All right, with some of those logistical concerns out of the way, let's talk about assessment of underlying medical problems at the scene. EMS providers must rapidly assess the patient and attempt to determine if there's an underlying medical condition that is contributing to patient's agitation. So similar to episode one, they're going to think about hypoxia, electrolyte derangement, intoxication, head or brain injury, or seizure. If they're worried about hypoxia, which remember causes agitation, apply oxygen. If they check a glucose and it's low, they're given sugar. Again, it's important to remember that EMS provider's goal is assessment, stabilization, and safe transport, not diagnosis on the scene. Some EMS agencies may use an agitation score like the Richmond Agitation Sedation Scale. 
It's a validated scale that allows the assessment of combative all the way to unarousable. I'll include a link in the show notes. And remember, this assessment is occurring in a very stressful environment. EMS providers must maintain the patient's dignity at all times. This means using the least restrictive method of restraint possible that will protect the patient, the EMS personnel, and the public, and employing de-escalation strategies whenever possible before resorting to physical or chemical restraints. So that's where assessing the events that led to the agitation, safe scene control, and ultimately a dignified response that meets the patient's needs and safety considerations is paramount. Okay, so let's move forward. So say you have a patient that has calmed down and you're able to get them into the ambulance. So as we transition to this new environment, let's talk about some of the special considerations. Unlike a hospital, there's limited space, staff, equipment, and medications. Because of these factors, the restraint techniques and thresholds to restrain a patient differ from the in-hospital environment. So EMS providers will wonder, well, if we have restraints in our ambulance, are they appropriately sized for pediatric patients? And how can we safely monitor and position a patient so as not to obstruct their airway? There are specific indications for EMS to apply physical restraints or administer chemical restraints. Again, it all goes back to training and protocol. In general, there are three main indications. Protect the patient, the public, and emergency medical providers from injury. Facilitate ongoing assessment and allow treatment of life-threatening conditions. EMS providers often work very closely with law enforcement, but should not administer medications for the sole purpose of aiding law enforcement in arrest. Let's talk about some specific strategies and techniques. So for physical restraint, you need to look at your EMS agency's protocol. This should provide instruction on what type of physical restraints and techniques are appropriate and permitted. Whenever possible, providers should use the least restrictive method of restraint in order to preserve the patient's dignity. Restraints should be able to be removed rapidly if there is a clinical change or concern for a patient. EMS does not use restraints like handcuffs or flex cuffs that are typically used by law enforcement. If a patient is initially restrained by a law enforcement device, if appropriate and safe, they'll try to transition to EMS-sanctioned devices when the patient gets in the ambulance. If a patient is restrained by a device that requires a key, the key must accompany the patient during transport. This makes all the sense in the universe, but it's important to know this. Patients should never be restrained with their hands and feet tied together behind their back. You're just asking for airway and breathing compromise. You should always be careful with any technique or position that may compromise the airway. So spit hoods or face shields may obstruct the airway. Protect yourself as a provider with appropriate PPE rather than covering the patient's face and mouth. Patients should also never be restrained in a prone position or under any backboard or mattress. Now we've talked a bit about restraints and non-pharmacologic means for safe transport And we covered a lot of the different medications that are used in the management of agitation. Note that the same cornucopia of drugs available in the hospital and ED setting is not necessarily available in an ambulance. Again, protocol, protocol, protocol. What is the EMS agency's preferred medications? 
These may vary based on jurisdiction. Common medications include benzodiazepines, so lorazepam in the oral IM or IV route, or midazolam in the oral, nasal, or IM route. EM agencies may be approved to use ketamine, maybe only in adults but not children. They could have drugs like droperidol or haloperidol or any combination of these. My biggest piece of advice is that you need to be familiar with what your local and regional EMS agencies recommend and what's on their protocols so you understand what patients can be given in the pre-hospital setting as well as be able to give timely advice during medical control calls. Pre-hospital providers will want something for the agitated patient that is more rapid in onset, and so IM or nasal onset is much quicker than oral. Using a paralytic or neuromuscular agent is not acceptable by itself. And let's be real, giving a patient a paralytic without sedation is straight up torture. And so you really want to try to control agitation without getting to the point where breathing will need to be supported with bag mass ventilation or even intubation. EMS personnel need to know onset of action, risk of side effects, and when these side effects might appear, as they could occur during the period of transport to the definitive destination. Over-medicating a patient or giving a second dose of something stacked too closely to the first puts them at risk for over-sedation. It is always okay to contact medical control for advice. After any type of restraint is instituted, whether that is physical, chemical, or both, careful assessment, reassessment, and documentation is required. This includes respiratory status, hemodynamic status, and neurovascular status. You should document the patient's behavior, the ongoing indications for restraint, the type of restraint used, exam findings, and agitation scores if deployed. Now, direct medical oversight is when a pre-hospital provider calls a hospital or receiving ED and collaborates on care. And for the paramedics listening to this episode, remember, you're not alone in the pre-hospital environment. There is the option for online medical control or direct medical oversight available to you at any time. In some EMS systems, personnel must consult when dealing with agitated patients who refuse treatment or for orders to initiate any type of physical restraint or administering any pharmacologic restraints. Sometimes there are protocols that allow them to practice independently in adults but not children. So again, be familiar with what is allowed and preferred in your jurisdiction. The protocols that we alluded to earlier are developed by the EMS medical director, and they should be clear about when and in what situations EMS personnel are required to contact a physician. Any physician providing direct medical oversight at a base station should also be familiar with the protocols. If pharmacological or physical restraints are used, it is very helpful to notify the receiving emergency department prior to arrival so that they can be prepared. EMS providers should include information about what was the emergency and why the treatment was needed for this agitation. If the patient refused treatment, why did they do so? Or if they could not consent to treatment, specify why. You know, were they unconscious, deemed incompetent, unable to refuse treatment, violent or agitated? 
what less restrictive methods were trialed prior to administering physical or pharmacologic restraints, exactly what treatments and or restraints were used, were there any suspected injuries sustained, what were the changes in behavior or mental status after restraints were employed, and whether or not law enforcement officials are involved. This is a lot to go over. So practice, practice, practice. Standardized checklists or algorithms can be very helpful on both ends to prompt a detailed yet efficient discussion. If you are the physician leaving this call, resist the urge to interject. Allow the pre-hospital provider time to communicate in an ordered fashion. Perhaps they are following an algorithm or script. This will allow them to not miss anything and give you the most valuable and detailed information. And if you've listened to this episode up until this point, you're wondering, man, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes in terms of determining what can happen in the pre-hospital environment. You're right. There's a ton of quality assurance that goes on regularly. So cases where physical or chemical restraints should be reviewed routinely. Ask the questions, was the use of the restraint appropriate? What type of restraint was used? Was the monitoring correct? Was the protocol followed? And was the documentation complete? This type of review allows protocols to be amended and for educational initiatives to be developed. One of the main themes of this episode is safety. And so that's the last thing I'm going to talk about. And this is really directed at the pre-hospital providers that are listening to this episode. Remember, if you feel like you cannot make it to your destination, you know, the emergency department safely, pull over and call for help. A truly agitated patient may be better served being stabilized at the nearest hospital rather than a longer transport to an academic children's hospital. Law enforcement officers, if available, should be involved in situations where the patient is at risk of injuring themselves, you as the providers, or the general public. Remember that your techniques for restraint are different from those of law enforcement. Any patient who is restrained by law enforcement may develop a need for EMS assessment and care. The law enforcement officer is expected to be readily available. Patients who are in custody or arrested should be accompanied by a law enforcement officer during transport. So it's important to collaborate with law enforcement and the ED to make sure that this patient is safe and transported in a dignified manner. All right, so that concludes episode four of the series on agitation. Episode five is going to talk about the child who was boarded in the emergency department for mental health concerns. If you want to learn more about the Emergency Medical Services for Children Innovation and Improvement Center, check out their work at emscimprovement.center. If you have feedback about this or any other episode in the series, send me an email, a direct message on Twitter, a comment on Facebook or on the blog, or even a review on your favorite podcast site. Feedback like this will help me continue to refine these overarching series that I've delivered over the years. For PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast, this has been Brad Soboleski. See you next time.